1: Namaste Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called If You Can't Stand the Heat. And to kick us off, Despite all the TV cookery shows we have to choose from nowadays, the average Briton cooks half as much as they did in the 80s and only knows four recipes, which is two more than I know. My namesake, Mrs Beaton, who is no relation, in her 19th century cookbook recommended boiling pasta for an hour and three quarters. So she was my kind of woman. The term slush fund comes from ships cooks selling the fat gathered from cooking meat Whenever they reached a port, the tall chef's hat traditionally had a hundred pleats, which represented the number of ways an egg could be cooked. Calvin Klein kept a Pantone card in his kitchen so his chef could get the colour of his coffee exactly right. We don't know what the Pantone was though. And the word jabble, that's jabble means to cook badly or with want of skill, which is the very opposite of today's guest.
0: Um, I'm not sure about this piece of turbot and hollandaise in my background, I might just get rid of that.
1: That's my guest today, Jack Stein. And in honor of his wanderlust, a few globe-trotting chef facts for you. There's a pizzeria in Guatemala that cooks their pizzas on lava from an active volcano. The composer Rossini gave up composing to become a chef he invented tornadoes, Rossini. Tornadoes, Rossini. You can see I can't even say cooking things, let alone cook them. If you take a picture of your food in Germany, the chef legally owns the rights to the photo as it's considered their artwork. I think that's fair. And Swedish people think the Swedish chef muppet sounds Norwegian. A menopausal woman helping you with your tech. That was
0: that was brilliant.
1: That's humility. Yeah, there we go. Jack Stein is a celebrity chef born in Cornwall, middle son of Rick and Jill Stein. He kicked off his career as a kitchen porter during school holidays and at 16 moved to front of house, working as a waiter throughout the remainder of his education. He went on to chef at famous restaurants the world over, including La Regalade in Paris, before extensive travels to the far eastern Japan with a stint at Michelin star Tetsuya's in Sydney along the way. He has been chef director of all the Rickstein restaurants since 2017 and his TV career is prolific. He's also author of the cookbook World on a Plate. Jack and I talked about parenting, time differences, cooking, travel, food, being ginger, cornwall, chips, psychology, nature, nurture, fear of flying, tabloid press, fame, trolls. And love at first sight. Now before we kick off confession time the reason we talked about time differences might have been that Jack's over in Australia at the moment and we set up the recording I should say I set up the recording for 10 a.m. his time which was late night UK time only I in my infinite wisdom assumed he was in Sydney Australia and it turned out he was in Perth so when I called him it wasn't 10 a.m. for him it was actually 7 a.m. but legend that he is he agreed to talk anyway. So I started by asking him where specifically he was recording from.
0: I'm in this art studio that my um, my fiancé's mum, she's an artist and an art teacher in Perth, so surrounded by kind of, I just love art. I love art studios because they're so chaotic and I like it because it's sort of like my life um, in, you know, sort of in kind of personified
1: does everybody in your family have to be an artist a designer a cook could anyone be like <laughs> if there was an accountant would they be allowed around the christmas dinner table or would your doctor to uh, piss off <laughs> a funny
0: question. um i think we don't have any accountants no we don't we we have we have a doctor but she's a psychiatrist so it sort of makes that more sense yeah um but no i mean uh no, I don't think even any of the sort of, um, you know, the partners, are. Uh, uh, I can't think, of, not that there's anything wrong with accountants. I mean, I found I found my own accountant this year for the first time um, and I, I really like him. He's very, um, you know, he's very, yeah, I just couldn't do the job.
1: You're not tempted to leave your fiancé for him though, are you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, no, I've not met him in person. It's not sort of one of the things with COVID, you sort of, you know, you kind of, you, you kind of build a picture of somebody based on their voice which is very strange um so i haven't met him yet but yeah you never never say never never say never i mean no. he probably likes golf or something like that so we can go for a long walk
1: if we include this bit in the podcast which we probably won't but if we do we've <laughs> lost all accountant subscribers to namaste motherfuckers i don't know how there many of them we have but we'll soon find out when we get hate mail for oh. them so so is it what time is it for you is it quarter past seven then for you <laughs>
0: Yeah so yeah so um I'm always up early though cuz I I come to this agreement with Lucy that I'll do the mornings with the kids um since we since we sort of had kids so my oldest is 3 and youngest is 2 and I give her a lie in and it's like this kind of she doesn't realize but I spend the whole morning trying to avoid waking her up until the latest possible and my current record is like quarter to 12 in the morning, or well, quarter to 12, mid midday.
1: So there's literally women gonna be throwing their knickers at their devices at the thought <laughs> that there is a man who having impregnated you might actually then be willing to look after the children till lunchtime every day. That's literally, that's literally yeah. like the dream ticket.
0: The best part was, is that she missed her deadline on fantasy football and got really angry at me she hadn't changed her team. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it just, this feels like quite a role reversal kind bizarre. of a relationship. I'm liking you two a lot.
0: I do a lot. Of, yeah, I do a lot of cooking. And um, yeah, so I mean, I, yeah, it, so I'm always up. So I'm all good.
1: Well, that's good to know, because if you asked a comedian, if you suddenly asked a comedian to jump on anything at 7.15 in the morning, you you well, you, we wouldn't be awake. So and if we were awake, you would get nothing coherent. So I'm glad that you do what you do for a living, not what I do. So so thank <laughs> you. We both are awake yeah. times: Me late at night, you early in the morning.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. It's a perfect, um, perfect harmony
1: it is and where are the um we should just check that the kids well-being given that your uh fiance's asleep I'm assuming someone is in charge of small children
0: yeah so so um Lucy's um mum and dad um just got a uh a knock on the door and a kids through the door sort of number I said I'm really sorry but they're already up so they're in there I don't know playing
1: did you sound really so but some moron in London can't do time differences
0: no 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 <laughs> No, I didn't say that.
1: <laughs>
0: no, I didn't say that. I just said a little bit of bit across of wires with the with the um the size of Australia because it's like we flew across it the other day. It took us nearly 6 hours and I I always marvel. I mean, I've been there a lot, but I always marvel when we come from the east to the west that you just it's like 6-hour flight from the UK. I mean, you could be one of many many different places. It doesn't feel like anything like the, you know, where you live. Um and in Australia, it's just one massive country. I
1: just was assuming East Coast all these years when I was sort of working in the business world and I always had teams around the world. So I always, I did many, many calls with Australia, but I was just ignorantly assuming where well, you're bound to be in Sydney or on that coast. So, you even having sent me something saying where you were. So, you know, let's uh, let's <laughs> assume that it's good I don't have an executive job anymore uh, and I'm allowed to be mushy-brained. But no, thank you so much for doing this. It's lovely to, it's lovely to have a fellow ginger with a fellow call. Cornwall connection I think that's those two I think we must have had ginger guests on the podcast before but I haven't had a fellow Cornish person not that I am Cornish but I have roots in Cornwall as you know
0: yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, if only I spoke fluent Dutch, it would be a, a triumvirate.
1: It literally would, <laughs> wouldn't it? It literally would. Is it, Um, and I did joke with you that all I would ask you is your favourite joke, and how much do you think I've spent on your dad's chips? Uh, so <laughs> it must, I, I'm sure you get sick of people talking about the price of Rick Stein's, and they are good chips, I'm not going to argue about it, so, but um, anyone, I, I mean, I think everybody knows, you probably get sick of being referred to as Rick Stein's son, right? Because that's the, fir- when you Google you, that is the first thing that comes up, which and really <laughs> i think within a couple of years when you google your dad it will say jack stein's dad but at the moment we're still at Rick Stein's son
0: yeah it's funny if, if you yeah, i guess you, you'll see yeah, if you Google it, you might see net worth and wife, uh, who is Jackson's wife, I think you made it when Google was sort of throwing these sort of, these sort of search results up when you put your own name, not that I do it a lot, you know, just a couple of times a day. Just
1: twice a, a day. day. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what, it's a really interesting, yeah, of course you can't get away from your parents, I mean, I've been very fortunate, you know, mum and dad have you know work extremely hard and you know this feels like a politician's answer coming out here that I've trotted out you know.
1: Don't worry we'll soon cut through that shit. Oh, that's
0: fine yeah let's get rid of it you know it's like Bill Hicks said you know I'm gonna plaster on a fake smile and plow through this shit one last time um, and um so, but, but they um, they, um you know that I, I really like um Professor Blakemore who's a professor friend of my uncle's who at uh, Oxford he's a I think he's a neuropsychologist or neuroscientist. His daughter is interested in the psychology of teenagers, which I find really interesting. I did a psychology degree. This is a very, very roundabout way of, of explaining what I'm trying to say. But basically, she said, because of her dad being a very famous professor, she was able to watch from the sidelines, learn a lot, and then when she got into a professional life, she was able. He was able to open doors, which just wouldn't be open to her otherwise. Mm-hmm. And she said, "You can't change who your parents are, but because of who my dad was, I was able to go to Berkeley and study at this laboratory." And I found myself listening to it, and that's really interesting because she's not saying, she's not being sort of de- deprecating and saying, you know, anything other than the facts. You can't change your parents. Your parents have opened doors for you, and my, myself have been able to travel, um, eat great food, and worked in some of the best restaurants in the world all because of my surname and that is you know both a positive and it can be considered negative as well depending how you look at it but for me i just think that that's been such you know travel and food are two things that are very close to my heart and will continue to be close to my heart for the rest of my life parents have given me a love of those two things which i think is great you know and i think if you can instill a couple of things in your kids that they really are going to go off and enjoy for the rest of their lives and you've done extremely well and i've been lucky to work in some great places and make some great friends and contacts along the way so it's kind of yeah again you you know it, it can happen in any strata of society whether it's you know you can you can make the same argument about you know people who go to eat and they get this golden spoon in their mouth and you can argue this that, that maybe i've had something similar but i've i'm very lucky I, all i can say is i'm very lucky it's what i keep coming back to when i think about my my life and how i've got where I am I've just been very fortunate you know white male albeit ginger hair which when I, I mean ginger's
1: young, a little bit of a strike ging- against so yeah if you're trying to put that through as a that you've kind I, of conquered some sort of by the way so if you could hear a cat <laughs> purring then she's like normally you're cuddling me reading a book at this time what are you doing um and is it because one, one of the things though that I think is the fact is the business you're in and by the way I should declare that I'm probably the least skilled person in the kitchen that you'll ever have spoken to in your entire life so we're on uncomfortable ground if we get into any specifics but I do know that working in your industry in terms of how you start out right there's no shortcuts you had to work your way up from kind of busboy on up I'm presuming there was no way to just go steaming in and being a brilliant chef
0: no. And I think, you know, when you, it's a family business. So, you know, childcare is expensive work, paying me £2.50 an hour to wash pots was cheaper than, you know, paying for childcare. So we, you know, parent, mum and dad worked all the time. And we did, you know, we were very, very aware that the business was really important. And, but we used to work as, as kitchen porters, cause it was like I say, cheaper than childcare. So we'd get like, you know, we'd earn a bit of money over the holidays and we'd learn, you know, that the, the kitchen starts from the, the, the people who, wash the dishes and wash the pots because without them the whole thing collapses and it's if actually if you talk to most chefs most chefs started as a as a kitchen porter they call them which is the you know it's the sort of like nice way of saying you wash pots um Mm -hmm. and yeah and it was it was a real you know it was a real kind of education in in the industry and I think that you know shit like you say you don't just go in as a head chef you do work your way up so I did front of house for a long time which I think for a chef um one of the big things that I think chefs often are guilty of doing is thinking the food when when you put it on a plate and then somebody takes it through the door that's the end of it you know but they forget that there's people out there real people who can be we're allowed to swear on this podcast i think the title's
1: the clue jack
0: (laughs) (laughs) they can be absolute wankers you know do you know who i am that kind of you know you know you get asked do you know who i am and you don't know who somebody is it's extremely embarrassing because now you think they've forgotten their own name which is you know a whole different kind of realm of of worry for the person and or secondly you just think they're a complete tosser and um you get a lot of that and uh, i think chefs kind of for me i was able from an early age to kind of appreciate that that the um the industry is not just the cooking it's it's the whole hospitality side it's making sure people are happy making sure that the plastic plants have been wiped of you know i mean these jobs that you do in front of house just you just can't believe you know cleaning cleaning glasses cleaning plants cleaning up after people when they've left um so yeah it was a real education and mum and dad i think were really really kind of keen for me to to learn from the ground up because again being the son you or being the child of a the owners you don't want to just come in and put a suit on and breeze around and tell people what to do because people just think you're a right dick
1: so you're the middle child first of all so what's that like i'm i'm the youngest so it's so and all three of you have ended up in the uh in the dynasty uh albeit in different ways right so your little (laughs) brother and you were on the kind of cooking side and your big brother's on another side of the business is that right
0: yeah so so the business splits between mum and dad so i work with dad and mum and Ed and my older brother and Charlie work with Mum. So Charlie does wine, which is the best. You know, he's picked the best job.
1: That is a nice job, surely. You don't get your hands too dirty doing wine, do you?
0: No, you just get pissed all the time. I mean, you know, the other day he was, you know, he he sort of flown back from a you know weekend away with some top VIPs in Burgundy, and then was in Heathrow. We both hate flying. You know, and had a few drinks and he'd done what we always talk about when we do end up getting on a plane absolutely hammered is to wait, say, wait wait you hate flying even
1: though you love traveling you hate flying. Yeah.
0: yeah so i have to get pretty drunk before i get on a plane mm-hmm. um like you know but when i'm drunk i'm just like smile i don't make any noise i've never been rumbled for being drunk on a plane but if you ask not me- that
1: you remember
0: no, but I often don't remember taking off, to be honest. Um, but anyway, Charlie said, oh, I'm just, um, I'm, in, I'm in departures. I'm going to Barbados. So he went to Barbados for a day, um, which made me laugh because I'm like, you, you know, you, you're in wine. You know, I'm sat here in the kitchen. You know, you've you know, gone to Barbados and back in the day, which seems a bit bizarre. but, um, And, um, you know, you're drinking all the time and having a great time. So he's had, he's probably picked the, the right horse when it comes to the business because you're right. Wine is just, it's just always fun, always fun
1: so no sweat and a lot of fun so he's doing wine yeah. and ed so you cuz your mum's a designer right
0: mm. so Ed does the interiors and the project so again if you can if you can picture the two offices at the end of one building above our chippy where you've been a lovely view by like the way you though, say chippy it's extra. quite
1: glamorous for chippy <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So you get the smell of fish and chips all day and it doesn't make you want to eat them. But so mum's office is like Google, you know, and I went to the Google offices once. People always say, oh, it's like Google offices. I went and did an event in the one in the King's Cross one, the one, that, the one that's going to be replaced by the, the yeah. land scraper or whatever they call the thing coming up. And, um, and uh, yeah, over in mum's office, there's like, you know, there's a baby and a cat, not a cat, but like a dog. And like, it's very like, you know, there's interiors and swatches and like, you know, bits of material and that, this, that, and the other. And dad's office is much more kind of big chair, um you know sort of white cat kind of you austin know, powers I'm, you're gonna do what i tell you bit like that yeah he sort and he said the great thing to me is i don't want to be dogmatic but this is exactly how i want it and i was like yeah there we go uh <laughs> um the dictionary definition of dogmatic there so we sort of work in the two different sides but i mean i love working with dad because he's you know he's I, he's my hero like I, I genuinely do have a lot so much like time with my parents how hard they've worked and, and everything like that and Watching a really great creative person do what they do is and being on the sidelines and watching you know him him sort of do everything that he does through business and also the TV and stuff it's great because you realize he just has a natural talent for it and and it's and it's amazing to watch and like you know I wouldn't have the the experience of being able to do that had I not gone to work in the business um so I'm very happy even though it can be it can be trying at times because it's your family and you know family's row and 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 this that and the other and sometimes the exec i mean you know you've been an executive but being an executive at a family business i don't know if you've ever done that but it's like
1: no my parents were teachers there was no call for me to get involved (laughs) in their lives
0: so but like if you've got you're in a boardroom and the family start you know wobbling and fighting and sometimes some of the execs we've had in the past have literally looked like you know god what's going on here but with your family you sort of always forgive each other and kind of you know you move on so yeah interesting dynamic um very happy to be part of it um but um yeah it kind it comes with its sort of it's stresses and foibles
1: it's funny because I interviewed um, Wayne Hemingway, uh, and I'm sure you know, founder of Red or Dead, and he's massive, yeah, yeah. he's really big into family and very similar to your setup, really, Hemingway Design, it has now got his adult children very much involved in it, and hearing him talk about the subject of family is quite moving, actually, And uh, and he talks... Yeah, he talks fairly honestly about it, but for him it's the complete mainstay and it's what he kind of grew up with as a values system, even though he didn't have a sort of dad present in Mm. his life. And so is that when you look at that family unit, is that because I don't, lots of people listening either won't have a good relationship with their parents, might not have parents, might not be able to countenance working with their, their family did, was there a sort of breakaway bit in your teen years where you were like, "Screw this! I'm not my parents. I'm going to go do something else"? And that you came yeah. back to it, or did you always feel quite aligned with with what your parents do?
0: Yeah, I think I think definitely that that happened. I mean, we, you know, I was they they kind of tried to get me to go and do something else as well. They were like, you know, don't come into the business; it's a it's a bit of a nightmare. You got to remember that the, the the food and drink, and especially chefing and and, and the restaurant trade in the sort of mid nineties when I was going through my kind of secondary schooling was was coming out of a real long period of, of difficulty in the UK, you know. It's hard long hours, not particularly well. You know, there's a few great restaurants like the Ivy and Caprice and these kind of like really, really well known restaurants in London, but the actual industry was pretty in a pretty bad state. So they didn't want me in it. They said it was too much, you know. So I went so I went off I and I did a degree, I did a psychology degree and was sort of really into the kind of science of you know, of uh, you know, I, I worked a lot with um, you know. My dissertation was on Asperger's syndrome, and I was really into kind of the kind of clinical side. And I have some friends down in in the in, in Devon who who have kind of done this amazing like um, service for people with learning difficulties. And they, they one of them, grew up um, in a kind of um, in a sort of a home. You know, like back in the day when everyone was kind of lumped together, mm-hmm. before everyone understood the different different needs of different kind of um, learning you know difficulties or you know whatever um the and he he really kind of instilled in me this idea of like you know using kind of your brain to kind of do good for people and it was really like I was really close to kind of moving over to be honest um
1: and when you say moving over to becoming a psychologist or
0: yeah clinical psychologist mm-hmm. yeah my my cousin is a clinical psychologist my other cousin is a psychiatrist so and and we often talk about you know I often talk to him at Christmas and I'm very really interested by the the research into it and then I know you've got some you know you know some personal history with it and I understand the kind of issues around it and I just find it fascinating how you can go from you know this situation my friend was in with living in a in a home for, with 50 people with with you know learning disorders and, and different conditions from that in the 60s to now all these people living in their own houses and having their own care and personalized care to different kind of um, conditions and you know going working with people with Rett syndrome and 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 Down syndrome and and Asperger's and seeing how back in the day it would have been horrific you know for everyone to be in the same you know just a bit like an old people's home you know where everyone's kind of there because they're old and that's the conditions that were people were put in back then and I was really kind of moved to, to, to do it um it was just it was just that at the time I was you know I was offered the chance to go and work at, in the city which is a bizarre kind of kind of juxtaposition but I went to work for um, do some work experience in the city for a for a big kind of insurance broker called Willis and I went there as a as a work experience student and um, I saw a completely different lifestyle you know it was like all money and and you know it was just it actually was during 20 uh during September 11th I was actually there in Willis and Willis were brokers of I think you know the trade centers and american mm-hmm. airlines potentially so it was very full-on hectic kind of period of my time and and they they offered offering me a job um and i was like you know i've got you know really divergent party you know kind of robert frost would be you know frothing over this kind of difference here um and i i went i went i was thinking i'm going to take this job in the city because it was all kind of you know there's money and and i guess i was in the period of my life where i just felt that maybe that was the way to go. Um, I think given the choice now would have gone the other way 100%. But then <laughs> I had a conversation with the chairman of the company, he came down to Cornwall and said, "I've, oh, you know, I hear they've offered you a job, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I wouldn't take it. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, you know, you've put this great business down here. All my my staff are, you know, hardworking, you know, city type. You, you, can, you, you know the type, very kind of macho kind of place back then and, and, mm-hmm. And he said, they all burn out and they all want to get a house down in Cornwall and live down here when they're 45. You're already down here. So why not just take this business on and, and run it like from the, with the family? I think it was a nice way of him saying probably they should never have offered me a job. And he probably <laughs> fired the person. But um, That's why I ended up back in the business. And it's sort of like it sort of it threw me out of my um, my my degree uh, sort of spun me around and before I knew it, I was back in the company. Um, so that was kind of my my big flirtation with doing something very divergent from from and, I, and to be honest I still think part of me if I if I, I guess the question is if you didn't have the business what would you do and that it would be in it would be in clinical psychology
1: so you had a sort of and I guess that was the kind of separation and exploring stuff that wasn't immediately assuming you go into the family business and then and actually I'd never thought of it that way that yeah most people are working their lives to be able to have a place in Padstow or the area and you had the place and everything set up for you and and is it if if you think about the well I guess an obvious question is how is learning to cook so it's not a given just because you're Rick Stein's son that you would necessarily be a good cook your brothers have both gone into other stuff I don't know whether they're good cooks or they're not but they're not doing it professionally like you so how how did how does Rick Stein's son learn to cook
0: <laughs> well he didn't ever first of all he never taught me to cook so the only thing he, he ever only ever thing he ever taught me was how to slice bread um I think I was good I, skill I,
1: that very and it's the only skill I have really good bread. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> there we go so well so uh, you yeah, know I'm I'm sure I'm not I'm not telling you anything you don't know already, but he was. I think he had a couple of drinks. He definitely had a couple of drinks. He came into the, into the kitchen for like a midnight snack. And I was, I think I was revising for my GCSEs and probably doing last minute revision at like midnight. And he came in and he was like, Jack, I, I, he, he called me son. He never called me son. He said, son, come here. So I was like, oh, God, I don't know what's going on here? And he goes, I'm going to show you something. I said, all right. And he goes, I'm going to show you how to slice bread. And I sort of. You know, when you, you know that age where you sort of start to realise your parents aren't kind of, you know, these kind of all-seeing, kind of omnipotent god-like figures. I've gone, oh god, here we go. And he showed me, and he he stood, he sort of lay down, not lay down, but he sort of sort of bent over the the bench, grabbed a knife and a slice of bread and a loaf of bread, and he started to slice. And he did this so he was just a soaring action. He used a whole arm. I said, oh yeah. So thanks a lot and he went off and to this day that's the only thing he's ever shown me how to how to do in a kitchen like like never like he's obviously an amazing sounding board now we talk about food all the time but he's never actually physically shown me how to do anything so it didn't exactly set me up so he um, did. Um, it's into... funny
1: because you always say I can't even boil an egg, and now the saying should be I can't even slice a loaf of bread. Uh, so I can now okay, boil yeah, an exactly. egg and slice <laughs> bread. I'm feeling pretty accomplished. So thank you. And so he didn't teach you, <laughs> um, although I'm assuming no. by osmosis, being in the environment of one of the world's most gifted chefs didn't hurt your. Some something must sink in, right? If you've got that in your orbit from when you can remember.
0: I think yeah. I think again that would be the yeah the osmo the osmotic kind of like feeding of 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 taste and what tastes good I did have that and I didn't I found that out at university when I was you know friends were making kind of you know pasta with dolmio or you know some brand of pasta sauce and mm-hmm. I was kind of knocking up pasta sauces you know for fresh and and it was never really like a kind of like snobby thing it was just like I suddenly realized people would come round to our place to our like student kind of digs in the first in freshest in the first year and kind of come around for food quite often and then by the second year we were you know, we were having kind of little dinner parties at home, and it was, you know, don't get me wrong, I was drinking loads of Stella and eating a lot of kebabs, and that's why I stayed at university for five years. There's, Keeping it real, no two ways about it, Abso-100%, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and um, and um, but um, but I was, you know, I was, I was aware that I kind of understood the how things should taste. So when I got into the kitchen eventually, I found it quite easy. And I think, but I think the biggest thing, and I think Rick would, do Dad, I call him Rick sometimes because I, when I was front of house. You can't go and say, you know, you're talking to somebody and say, oh, dad, you, know, you have to say Rick. So I learned this kind of, I had to use the word Rick. And if I was sat talking to a table for too long, really nice couple, we'd say for it, argument's sake and we're talking about stuff. Occasionally we'd drop in dad and they'd be like, did you say dad? And I'm like, oh, he's like a dad to us all, you know, sort of thing. So that's why if you, if you, want, if you wonder why I occasionally call him Rick. but Rick, I think um, you're just a
1: very bohemian Cornish family where everyone's first names <laughs> yeah. only.
0: But my, in my eldest son, started calling um, my fiance Lucy since she's been here, and she only calls her dad Charlie or Camella, who's Italian. And I and I said, "But well, you do the same to your parents." And she's like, "Yeah, but it's different." I was like, "It's not different."
1: I think they do it to wind you up. At a certain point, they definitely do. <laughs> oh, my kids definitely yeah. went through that phase. Now they can't even remember my name. But for a while, it was just scorched sport to them. So yeah, you were saying yeah. about your so, dad. So it's,
0: yeah, so we, so it's. I think it's about organization and chaos. So kitchen, so I, I'm a fairly chaotic kind of um, person in my personal life in terms of not very organized, a pretty forgetful, um, every kitchen has a, as a, has a, 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 like a place for my keys because I'll famously walk into any kitchen and before I could be in there for two minutes and I've left my keys somewhere and they've all realized that they just find my keys and put them on the shelf or this little hook. So I'm very chaotic, but when I'm in a kitchen, when I'm, when I'm faced with like, You have to be very organized to cook it's one thing that that i'm really organized and it's the one place in my mind when i'm sat cooking that everything is how i'd imagine somebody who's very organized lives their life and it's a little through the keyhole moment to a life that i wouldn't want to lead all the time but it does make me realize that when my mum says i'm really disorganized i always say but in a kitchen i'm not so it sort of it does relate to my mum and dad i think my dad had the same thing talking to people I mean, I work with him as a kitchen porter, but I never cooked alongside him, although I have like in demos, but I've never, cook, never cooked alongside him day to day, which is where you really see somebody's kind of chops. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. if you do it just for a, a one-off demo, you can kind of put it on. Um, but people who work with him on alongside him would say he was extremely organised when he was cooking. But the moment the check stopped, he would just be all over the shop. And that's basically me. So I think that cooking to me, although it's it's it really is painting by numbers, um, but it's also about, living a different life it's a kind of like acting for me because i am not like you know people that i've cooked with would say god he works really clean like his section's always really spotless his mise en place which is all the prep work you do is always like really good um and then they just get in my car and be like what the hell is going on here (laughs) are there animals living in this car what's
1: what's the deal (laughs) is it um (laughs) it's really funny you say that though because it's like it is obviously a version of you. Who's in the kitchen and being organised? But it's funny how the thing we do—that is the thing everybody thinks is the difficult thing. I don't know if this is the same for you, but I—I I find life never easier than the bit on stage. So by the time I'm on stage and doing my thing, it, its like a sort of knife through butter, through I should say, a warm knife through, not cold butter. But is whereas. Whereas there's other bits of life that other people seem to do really well, and I'm like, oh, I find that quite difficult. And and is that so? It's almost like it's, it's not a fake thing, but it's like that bit is is very honed. And also, I suppose a, a, a bit like a performance, you know, when you've got to get food out of the kitchen there's no fucking around there's people waiting for it and it's the yeah. same with what i do you know if you're told you're on stage at 11 and you're off stage again at half 11 it doesn't matter what has happened there's no being late and there's no leaving early you know you just got to get the job done so you, so something clicks in that is very sort of streamlined and pure but is there any any sort of does any of that echo with with how it is for you in the kitchen 100
0: percent, 100 percent. i mean it's very i mean yeah you couldn't i mean it's like you're inside my brain that's exactly how it is and I find it incredibly easy and incredibly like, um, you know, both cathartic, but also inspirational. And in, But I enjoy it. I And that's why I do it. That's not, you know, I sitting in an office and I have sat in offices and I've done, um, you know, um, spreadsheets and looked up at the clock and it's I, it just doesn't move like it doesn't move ever. And my brain just can't focus on that kind of those sorts of tasks where it's, you know, you know, you're just doing these sorts of jobs which brilliant people are brilliant at but me in a kitchen honestly the day goes so fast and i enjoy it and i laugh and i and I, like i say it's the most the easiest thing to do but what i think most people would like you say would think would be the hardest and i think it also live tv is like that for me so i do the steph show on channel four um and i people go oh god i couldn't do that Oh no i couldn't you know not live tv i'm like it's so easy you just do it once you know what's the worst that's gonna happen i was on there the other day i had no gas i was cooking chicken and i had no guess i had to pretend to cook and it was like and people were like oh how did you man? how did you cope I just, but it's like i find it really easy because it's when you're under the almost when you're in the most pressure is where i find myself where you've got nowhere to yes. go no one to blame but yourself if it goes wrong i find that really living on that kind of edge i find it really kind of invigorating and it makes me do the best work Do you see what I mean?
1: Not as much as The Edge as if the crew had eaten that uncooked chicken. That would have been living on the edge and that would have been a bad (laughs) story for the Stone Empire. But luckily, (laughs) you were like, don't eat it. I've made it look good, but please don't touch it or eat it. Yeah, just do not touch
0: it. it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, no, I just think that that's... I think
0: that you've hit something. It sort of struck a chord with me there. And I think that's where... Again, I think it's down to the locus of control for me again. Like, you've got... You know, it's all on you. It's your, You're completely responsible for your destiny and that's where I think that I find... I work really really well and when when i think that somebody else is doing the work for me i'm pretty lazy i mean i'm phenomenally lazy when i can when i need to be it's funny that I, can.
1: I feel like i'm in that you're in my brain now because i'm this no one would think anyone who knows me would be like you are not lazy but i'm i'm either on or i'm off there's absolutely no i'm nailing it or i'm doing absolutely sod all, and there's not much in between time but do you find the it's funny when you, when I, and again, I have no understanding of what it's like to do what you do creatively and culinarily, but it's, it, I do know, I, I when I do things and anyone asks me to script it or rehearse it, like this week I was doing a big hosting thing for a corporation for like thousands of people and they made me do a tech rehearsal. And in the tech rehearsal, they wanted me to run through, they'd me a sort of auto cue script, which I then obviously was going to disregard. But then they were like, will you do some of the stuff you're going to do? And I, and I literally, I knew even if I made any of the like little jokes or ad libs or whatever that in the rehearsal, it would screw it up for me on the day. And so I sort of had, and they were also like, can yeah. you send over the points you're going to say? And I, I just, I just, I'm sorry, but I just don't work like that. And if you give me parameters, I promise you I'll keep within the parameters and I will get through the content, but you're going to have to let me work live. And, and then it did all come together today. Whereas at the rehearsal, I was actually really, I think they were probably thinking, Oh Christ, we've made a terrible mistake. She seems really wooden and out of it. And I kind of was, cause I couldn't engage until, the lights were on and the audience were there and it comes out and is there is there a similar thing with the kind of cooking like if you over prepped or or had to do it once and then do it for real it would be harder for you
0: yeah i think i'm one, I literally 100 i will often do things where and, and people will go like if you practice this i'll be like that's no, fine don't worry about it it's like that it's my it will come much more naturally to me if you just let me crack on with it and because i think that the, that pressure just that just and that my brain just is just it's like you know you're on a thin line you've got you've got one chance here and you're going to make it um, but if i yeah when i do rehearsals when i do anything try and do anything prep wise i just i i never bother i just i know the full well like if i've done it once i won't be able to do it nail it again so i mm-hmm. will just i you know like i say leave it to it's exactly what i do i mean people have, i mean i did what did i do i was doing this thing on the cooking with the stars with aj do and we were doing this um for arthur and So it's a, like a layered bread, which you put butter through, a bit like sort of puff pastry, but they're really nice. If you're ever in, a, in an Indian restaurant, order one as, as opposed to a naan bread, they're, they're, they're like flaky and really delicious. And like I YouTubed it in the morning. Like I'd never made one, never made one. I looked at look, this lady making them on YouTube, and I've gone, All right, fine, I can sort of figure that out. And then we did the training with her, and um, and she, and I said to her, I'll, I'll tell you what, I've never made this before, but no one's going to know. No one's, no one's gonna know. We made it on the training day, and um, and they came out perfectly. And she was just like, after she's like, how could you do that? How could you just like, you know? And I'm like, it's just like confidence. I know I can. I know I can cook. I know I can watch YouTube. I can put the two together, and I can act like I know exactly what I'm talking about. But between me and you, I've never made this before. And, so finally, and we perfectly. found
1: out. How did you learn to cook? YouTube. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> yeah, okay. And it took us twenty minutes to go. get to that. So you're talking good game. But now we know that we can all do it. Namaste, motherfuckers. I don't know the politics of your world and I don't know what the different chefs think of each other. And I'm sure there are and I'm not asking you to get into anything kind of controversial. But when I when a sort of um, muggle like me, who's not in that world, but eats in nice restaurants sometimes, when I think about the sort of the the big name chefs. So one of the things that I and I won't name names, but through my sort of prior life when I was on other people's dollar going to lovely restaurants and Michelin star restaurants and all the rest of it. One of the things I used to most hate was was when a celebrity or major name chef would come out and only and they'd have mates there or people who were special people like famous people are in or whatever. And then they went and really gave attention to a table or two tables who were like special people. And then I'd be thinking, okay, so if I'm not one of those people, I now feel like a complete second-class citizen, but I'm still spending money in your restaurant. So is that, is that something that you recognise when I'm saying that, of, of sort of the kind of mutual sycophancy of of celebrity chefing and celebrities dining in those places?
0: Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I'm probably guilty of doing the same thing myself, to be honest, but I mean, I get... That's I what I think, I'm trying
1: to do is shame you, Jack. If you've ever done that, you're a dick. No, no, yeah, no, it's,
0: it's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I, I mean i guess i guess it depends sometimes yeah if it's celebrities it's slightly different i wouldn't go out and see a celebrity in the restaurant um unless they've asked to see me i wouldn't they just that i mean we do you know we've had you know our restaurant we've had everyone from you know sort of bowie to you know you know to cameron you know politicians and, and celebrities never i'd never go out and see them um, i'd go out and see people in the industry you know if it's a chef who's dining with us um or somebody who's used to work for us i'd go out and see them but i wouldn't go out and see or a chef. tv there commissioner is from a, channel that, four
1: that,
0: that, absolutely yeah yeah 100 uh, <laughs> percent have some more <laughs> wine from my brother <laughs> charlie <a> <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs>
0: the, um, but that, i think though um i guess what i guess you know the the, industry, the restaurant you know being a chef and being an A-list celebrity, is probably the closest you'll ever get to being an A-list celebrity, is is when you you are a chef and you want to book a table somewhere because you can pretty much get a table anywhere if you're in the industry and you're well liked. And and I think that the broader point about chefs in general is, uh, I think in any industry, and one of the things I, you know I often say to young chefs is, you've just got to remember it's a very small industry. You know, it's it's not you know it may seem massive when you're a young chef and. You know, you've got like Heston Blumenthal and, and Gordon Ramsay and Rick and, and all these other great chefs. And, you know, but actually when it comes down to nuts and bolts, like the entertainment industry and like TV, it's actually quite small and people f- figure out quite quickly if they think you're a dick. Um And, um, you know, when I guess that's where, where like, you know, you book a table in a restaurant in London that you can't get a table in and then you, you know, you'll get a table if you're a chef because everyone looks after each other. So it's kind of, um, yeah, the egos and stuff in the industry, I think it's a bit overplayed. I would say like, you know, by, you know by and large a lot of it is kind of played for tv of kind of and when you get a nice organized kitchen they don't shout you don't get you know you use curse kind of short anglo-saxon occasionally because it's quite easy to to get your point across by saying you're fucking this that and the other rather than having to do the sort of you know the hr you now hr would love us to talk in kind of you know long sentences and you know i think you've got a training need that is Not being fulfilled here as opposed to saying you're a fucking knob you know get me that so there's no time
1: for diplomacy rather than there's a lack of respect or a kind of nastiness behind any of it
0: no i mean i've never i'm like i say there are some angry chefs out there don't get me wrong but i think the ones that you think are going to be angry the bigger names you probably find actually are the most organized you know like gordon's a great example you know i know gordon really well i know people have worked for him he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet and his kitchens are the best He's the best cook. that I believe he's the best cook that has ever come from the UK. My, really, my that's view, really
1: but, interesting. Yeah,
0: um, and I know people that have worked with him, and people that still work with him. And you know, he is. When you actually, when I, you know, when you see him, he knows all about you know what's going on in your kind of industry and your life, and he knows mum and dad really well. And you see him all the time. He lives down near us, and I think you know he's an amazing, you know. Character on TV, you know, there is no doubt that he's got the most amazing presence for a chef. He's exactly what you imagine a chef would be. You know, mm. he's perfect as a as a character. But actually, his kitchens are the best in the country. You know, the cleanest, the most organised. You know, he's got that many Michelin stars, and that's not because. And he's the hardest working guy that there is. You know, you go down the road to a local pub in the kitchen when the, the the kitchen's disorganised and it's dirty and it's. You know all over the place you'll see shouting and people throwing pans around down there but that's more because they're they're disorganized and they're, they're out of their depth
1: you know. and panicking is it um yeah, i exactly. i find after a life working in television that i find it very hard to relax watching television still because i'm deconstructing everything and i i, I find it incredibly hard i'm just about now a few years out of my full-time job in telly just about starting to enjoy watching it again really enjoy it and not think about having to do something professional with it is there an equivalent for you then that if you're out eating that you're you can't you can't tune out the kind of quality of what's going on from front of house through to the kitchen
0: no i'm very i mean again that's that's quite often a question you you will get asked is you know what's it like to cook for a chef or what's it like to be cooking in a kitchen when a chef comes and sits down to be honest i completely zone out i don't like you know the act of cooking for somebody whether it's you know, whether it's you know at home and somebody's just that can just about boil an egg and do some toast. So if I come around to your house, Kelly, there um, the, the act of putting food in front of somebody to me is it's all about that. Nothing else it doesn't matter what it tastes like. It's a really romanticised idea, but I just think that the act of of going to preparing food for somebody else is enough. It doesn't matter if you said my you know my lasagna is the best in the world then i might go on oh, well your seasonings off you know your pasta's rubbish you know be a bit more critical but that's like a very different state of affairs and i wouldn't i've I, i've never be critical unless it's something that's really like unless it's something that i think is going to affect another person in the restaurant for if something comes out and it's really bad and it, i'm thinking they're sending they're serving that all night somebody um and it's going to affect a few other people yeah you know, something's seriously wrong i probably would say something but i would you know I, i'm not particularly picky and i'm not particularly fussy to be honest, we don't. We don't you know, As a family, we we have. I didn't even eat in a Michigan side restaurant until I was nearly thirty. With oh with really? Dad. He never took us. Yeah, he just. You know, he, we would we eat off the streets and we would eat the you know kind of really kind of rough places. I'm not. I probably because he's a bit tight, maybe. But maybe because he just. It's <laughs> all think about the really, margins. The Michigan thing. It, exactly, yeah, but the Michigan <laughs> thing I think is an interesting one. Again, you know, I think it's an interesting. You know, when you look at an industry, you look at you at the entertainment industry for you know, you look at things like um, you know, the Emmys, the Oscars, whatever you whatever you want to say, you know, these the emission guide is like that for chefs. You know, it's like that kind it's of like a have to reward. Yeah. And I think you have to reward hard work. And there has to be a way of even though for me, personally, the best meals I've ever had haven't necessarily been in the three Mission Star restaurants I've eaten in. Some of the best meals I've had have been in three, two, and one, but it's not a guide to me of the best of food, but it is a guide of how hard people work. And I think that people who are sniffy about Michelin forget that to be a Michelin, you know, Simon Rogan from Long Clume in Cartmel in the Lake District, he's got his third Michelin star. Now, I've known Simon since I first met him in, in Copenhagen at this kind of you know, conference for, for world kind of hipster foodies. And, um, and he has been the most driven, dedicated chef And to think that it's 10 years later, he's finally got his third mission star is just incredible. And I, you know, hats off to him. It's not what I would want because it's not my kind of food to cook, but you've got to appreciate that it's, it's sort of, it has to be some kind of recognition for hard work.
1: I think there's um, I'm a BAFTA voter just I'd slip that in and I do think one of the things it's you, you okay. don't tend to get a BAFTA if you if you don't deserve a BAFTA but that doesn't mean that there aren't tons of people who do deserve a BAFTA who aren't getting one so it's not saying oh you, these people but there are so many people who get overlooked and so much talent um, I'm sure it is probably the same in your world and we know it from friends who are musicians friends who are in the arts don't we there are so many incredible mm-hmm. people that don't get the recognition as well as the people who rightly get it yeah and in terms of the lockdown and what you've Got, I mean I, I sort of joke and as we all do on stage how hard it was for comedians uh through gritted teeth because it was shit for us but it was also shit for hospitality so you, you no. guys uh, and I and again we won't dwell on it I know there was a, a press for Rory, as there were about lots of kind of bigger name companies people trying to sort of dig for dirt but that must have been an incredibly stressful time for you because it was your whole family's business and nobody knew how long this was going to last so how did you all how did you all cope through the pressures of lockdown yeah, it was,
0: a, it was a strange one that one. It, so we, so yeah, I mean, I go back in time. So when the when when the pandemic hit and sort of March time, early March time, Boris Johnson came out and and said um, something along the lines of, you know, restaurants should probably close, and but we're not going to close them, and old people shouldn't go to them. You know, this complete kind of hands off, kind of typical current conservative. You know, you know, oh, if you smoke, you choose to smoke, and that kind of ridiculous. And liberalism it doesn't make any sense and, and so we were left in a situation where we were coming out of a winter, so we're a seasonal business we make we lose money um for um, eight months of the year mm-hmm. so for eight months a year we're lost making it for four months a year we make all our money for the year so coming out in March just before Easter is our lowest cash time we have mm-hmm. no cash you're in deep into our overdraft and um this came out and we were looking at we had 40 grand in the bank um you know and our payroll next payroll was 500 grand in you know, a couple of weeks. And we were in a situation where we were going bust like within within weeks. We're a 45 year old business that turns over enough money to be fine. You know, like in a normal year, every year we, we we're quite profitable, but we just, it was just the timing. And, you know, we were then, then the furlough scheme came out and that pushed our kind of, we're going to go bust date to mid summer. So we're thinking, right, if we can open in summer because of furlough, we'll survive. But if we don't, we're still going bust. So the Daily Mail article came out, which was a bizarre article because it basically said, Rick Stein's, basically, we didn't refuse to pay anyone. We were just saying, right, we, we, we haven't got the money for the payroll. The furlough scheme starts. When the furlough scheme starts, we'll back backdate all the pay. But at the moment, we, we haven't got any money. There's, so it was a cash so flow situation, um, not the, a point of principle of not yeah, paying I,
1: people. Yeah.
0: No, and, but the difference with us is that we went out straight away and told all our staff. We said to everybody... Rather than just let them realise in two weeks' time they weren't getting paid, we told them early and I think somebody leaked that to the press. So the story was we weren't paying our staff. It wasn't. The story was when furlough money comes in, we will back pay you for these two weeks and then you'll get the eighty percent that everybody's using because we can't afford we can't afford to pay um the staff at the moment. We've got no money, we're going bust. And and everybody in the business understood that. We because we basically said, look, this is the situation. You've got two weeks, and so you can go and speak to your landlord, speak, you know, all the things that were coming out that people were able to mitigate costs. We didn't want to just drop it on them two weeks' time. If we'd waited two weeks, the story would never have gone because it would have mm. just been like Rick Stein has furlough. But, and you'd um, have done exactly was, the
1: same thing without the courtesy of telling your staff first.
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, but the Daily Mail came out, and I, you know, again.
1: You came in guns I've blazing. Learned. I was like, that's ginger hair yeah. for you. We don't take that yeah. shit lying down.
0: But then you just then you realize, you know, it's like the internet and 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 social media. Like I, I was going for people because they personal attacks on the old man. I'm like, I'm I'm going to gun for him because it's like it's not, you know, it's you know it's ad hominem kind of Rick Stein, is this that and the other. I'm just going no no, I'm not having that. Like if you know, I'll I'll go out to bat for him. And then I realized these people are just wankers. They're just wankers. And then I mean, I remembered one guy. And it was it was very funny. Yeah, you because know, the first thing I do when I kind of go against a troll is I'll just go and, like basic stuff. Like it's the same as if you look, read something on the internet, go and Google it before you start making an opinion on it. Cause it's pretty basic kind of research to so go on his timeline. And I realized this is the most disturbed individual I've ever seen. I mean, there's, you know, kind of messages to famous sort of sex working porn stars and urination and all this kind of weird, bizarre stuff on his timeline. And I'm going like you're trolling my dad but then two tweets behind you're kind of asking somebody to urinate on you and it said you realize i'm like um you know what i'm probably just gonna let <laughs> just gonna this die down people, leave these people alone and actually it was steph mcgovern was was you know who's now a very good friend she said and i was i was having some trouble with it when I was on the show and we still recording the show during lockdown and i was, I was having some trouble and she, she came into my room and she said look I've had a lot of this, you know, over my career, you know. She has, you know, yeah. Because of her sexuality, and she's, you know, a, a strong, like, funny woman like yourself, and, and you get a lot, I mean, worse than I've ever had. And she said, listen, all they're trying to do is they're just trying to affect your life. You're They want to know that you're sat there thinking of them. That's all they care about. And it's like, and it doesn't matter. Just put it to bed, just you've got a family going speak to them. Because at the time I was I was I was getting angry. I was like set on my on my phone and going at these people and Lucy and the kids were there and I'm, like, I'm missing all this time. We're in lockdown. We can hang out. Um so yeah that was a bit of a rough period for me and I kind of you know obviously it was really rough for the business and, and you know and obviously being in Padstow and being a significant employer, there's a lot of kind of rumours going around and there was you know it's 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 tough it's tough to own a business in a town. I mean I've you know that's as small as as, as Padstow when things aren't great because when things are going well people are just like you know it's successful everyone's kind of making money and everyone's working but when there's a threat that that business might not be there it was amazing to see how padstow kind of um rallied around and and actually supported us which normally you would never imagine because there's always people just going oh rick's ruined." you know padstow used to be great in the 70s and I'm like people who lived there in the 70s were like it was shit like the fishing fleet was going downhill and there was no tourism and you know it was a, you know it wasn't great but rose tinted spectacles being what they are but but actually when it was when there was real trouble it was just like you know it's a bit like a family it's like we can have a go at them in Padstow, but the, the you lot on the outside can't have a go at it. yeah so it was really kind of nice the, the you know the kind of the community spirit of lockdown all the kind of cooking we did for people and all the stuff that every a lot of restaurant businesses didn't during that time but it was stressful. And, but to be honest, nothing like being in your industry, nothing like comedy, nothing like nightclubs. I mean, I, you know, I kept saying, like, people go, oh, it's so hard. it must be so hard in hospitality. I'm like, yeah, but we can we reopened, you know, in events or in, like, nightclubs and, and, and comedy clubs. These sort of, they had no, tr- they had nothing. They had zero kind of, we had little lights at the end of tunnels, you know, of the little opening in
1: July. Although we did have less overheads. A lot of, I think that is the difficult thing. I mean, it depends. Some of the clubs, and there are clubs that went bust, and there are other clubs that had to be incredibly um sort of savvy and hustly to keep going through it and i'm still amazed actually how many clubs have survived i was watching yeah. it thinking a lot of these clubs won't survive and it and it was through kind of uh, yeah hustle that they did survive but and you of all people should know if a dodgy tabloid story comes out you of all people should know that is tomorrow's <laughs> paper so i can't believe yeah, the exactly. governor has to tell you that <laughs> <got> I was going to say um, that I, I want to ask you the three questions I ask everybody, but I just before I do that, in terms of Cornwall, and as I said, you and I have a sort of—you have a, a very big connection there that you are brought up there, and I've I've always been going there since a child and have have a place down there. I'm one of the much hated second home holiday home owners down there. But hey, there we are. That's who I am, and um, and that's all there is to it. But <laughs> have you seen
0: the film? have you seen, have you seen Bait the movie? Yes, <laughs> the Mark Jenkins movie. Yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: We'll put a link to that in the yeah. show notes for anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about.
0: <laughs> Great movie. <laughs>
1: um, but in, but you're doing, so Cornwall is a place that, and it is a very sort of, um, well, there's a reason lots of people go to it and love it. And I always, I, I it takes quite a lot of time, obviously, for me to drive down to Cornwall and I do rent the place out most of the year. But whenever I get down to Pull Room, which is where my place is, I'm just like, God, you know, this is, yeah it's just a whole other world really and I and I still think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world and I it still literally takes takes my breath away um so that there is a sort of I think people who love Cornwall have a, have it somewhere kind of deep in our heart and soul but I was going to ask you I feel like I know lots about Cornwall but I did not know so you're hosting the Rock Oyster Festival just tell me is that a new thing I'd never heard of that before
0: no it's been going for a, in different guises for about 10 years I think there's um it's sort of sort of come and and gone obviously during covid but yeah it's, it's um yeah it's a sort of a little family festival and they've asked us to kind of create the which sounds crazy but to create the kind of chefs um lineup and then the music kind of they sort of said oh do you like the happy Mondays I'm like yeah of course I mean theres there's maracas were you know a, a mainstay of my growing up so the um so yeah it's, it's a lovely little festival it's really I mean it's on the banks of the camel it's got the amazing views and it's really nice when you actually work with people who are really organized. The people who, you know, we went and did the site visit the other day and they've done all the sort of, you know, they know exactly how everything's going to look. And then that really amazes me because I'm just like phoning up chef friends again. Do you want to like Gizzy Erskine and, and, and people like that. And that saying, Oh, do you want to come and do this festival? And they're like, yeah. And they feel like I've done loads of work, which all I've done is phone mates and said, do you want to come and, you know, and I'll compare and, and and sort of hey, i saw you the, were
1: comparing i was like don't get in my grill with the uh, thing that some of us are making a know, living out yeah. of <laughs> and is it and is it music and <laughs> before i get pissy about that is it music and cookery it's not a comedy festival is it
0: no no we 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 don't have uh, any comedians at the moment but um but it's interesting how you know the first music and food festival i ever did was latitude like, you know when food was actually put on a stage you know this was back in 2012 or 13, and, and Gizzy was hosting it, and I remember thinking, "Oh, this is a bit weird." And it's like, you know, food has become like, you know, worthy of a festival. I'm not so sure about that. It's not, it's not comedy, it's not music, it's not the things you associate with kind of, you know, good festivals. But actually, now it, it does seem that people are quite keen. And, I, and again, I don't understand why um, people seem to trust chefs to kind of, you know, tell them what to do in cooking. But also, for some reason, we're also Supposed to be experts on geopolitics and sustainability and all this kind of stuff. And actually, if, if people realised that I sit in the back of my dirty car eating a rustler hamburger every now and again, I don't think <laughs> they'd ever listen to me
1: again. <laughs> well, you've said it now. Do you know the comedian? George, do you know George Egg? Um, the comedian George Egg. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I work with him. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The snack, the snacks.
1: Actually, guy, yeah, but he's, yeah, he's I don't scenario. know if you've ever seen his shows but he's he is so good at bringing the two things like bringing the two things together and he's exactly I yeah I always think when I think of him that that's exactly how you how you feel you want to hear somebody talking about and behaving with food <laughs> so yeah and is um and I'm surprised he's not been banging on your door when he's heard about the Rock Oyster Festival so we'll put a link to that and it's on the camel estuary I should say you said on the camel yeah so for anyone yeah, who yeah. doesn't know it's not on an actual animal
0: no 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 it's not on a yeah.
1: yeah. You're not riding in on a camel.
0: <laughs> no. I'm trying to think of the name of camels. Is it, what's the one with one hump? Doe, Decahedron. No, that's a shape. No, it's Dramedid, a... Dromedic. Dromedon. Uh,
1: I should Back. really know this with a son who's a zookeeper. He, a drama, dromedary. Is it yeah, dromedary?
0: Like I think there's more... I think I heard the other day there's more camels in Australia than anywhere else in the world. Really? I just have to go and look. Yeah, I'll go and look later on
1: yeah no doubt you will well, given that I've made you do this before eight in the morning you've got a whole day ahead of you to do your research <laughs> namaste, what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life changing moment
0: it's gonna sound corny but so when I so it was been meeting Lucy so when I um so I shot a TV show down here in Southwest Australia so it's Margaret River region um, it's a wine growing region um and um i was i'd just come out of a really bad relationship and was very and that sounds bizarre but i was i was very angry um very wouldn't say misogynistic is the wrong word because i'm not at all but like very like very pissed off um and i was kind of like you know fuck this and fuck relationships and i'm just gonna you know being being a bit of a dick to be honest um didn't like the version of myself that existed between sort of um <laughs> sort of when I landed, which was like the fifth of January, and when I met Lucy, which was like the twenty third or fourth of January, but I was shooting a TV show. It was my first ever show on my own, and I, and and I was down in Augusta, and um, we met on the set. Um, typical kind of you know, you know, you, you know don't screw the crew, or whatever the phrase is, you know. But you know, it was she was my. She was my home economist and I was just straight away bang. I don't know what what about her, whatever it was. Her dad was directing me. I didn't know it was her dad. I was kind of like besotted. And, but I, you know, by the uh, first week in February, she'd moved to England and, and I've been in love ever since. And I never believed in love at first sight. And I never believed that the person that landed in Perth, that, that person could be that, the person that I am now. Um, and not only was it my first ever TV show, which was great for my career and and you know it wasn't, Rick wasn't connected to it in any way and all these kind of other things which were important, but it was more that you just, I just couldn't, I could not believe that I'd go from this angry, horrible kind of, you know, 35 year old knob um, that was probably going to cause all sorts of problems to lots of people because he was just angry. And then to this loved up kind of puppy dog with two kids and just never been happier. So it would be that. I mean, it's corny and it's people, you know, you know, but it's it's true.
1: It gives me hope I think that that could happen. I just need to go to Perth and get my own TV show and it's game on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that, that love at first sight thing, I was like, yeah, sure. And people always say, yeah, all right and then yeah, there we go happy days
1: and how long ago i know your kids are what, what are they now you're, you're a little boy and girl three, three and two
0: three and, yeah, two. Three and so how, two so and how long have years, you guys
1: yeah. been together
0: five years yeah just just gone we just sell so five years in january this year so yeah how uh, did she feel lucy about was, did
1: she know cornwall because it's quite a specific kind of a place so going from <laughs> perth to cornwall how was that for for lucy
0: she went to she did went to Chelsea Arts School, so she did she had been in London before, so she understood. I did sell it to her a bit like it's a bit like Australia. It's the closer you get to Australian lifestyle, but in England. And I I think she didn't realise that I'd left out the weather, the weather? shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apart from the weather. But people in more, you know, the surfing and the, that kind of thing. But she's much more into art and kind of cities than kind of the beach, which was, you know, something she didn't tell me at the time. In that early period of relationships where you like you know you claim to do all these sorts of things that you then roll back on and go you know what I'm I'm not (laughs) I really like the beach (laughs) she (laughs) likes the beach but she's not like an Australian I want to be at the beach all day long sort of thing she's much more into art galleries and um, painting which is actually much more like I love surfing don't get me wrong it's my exercise but I do love culture you know
1: so she's adapted well and you go back and forth presumably she wasn't able to go back to Perth for quite a while During is this your first trip back for a while Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, two years. So again, like, a lot, her lucky her mum and dad were over when we when Arlem, our youngest, daughter was born, which was yeah December of twenty nineteen. So they left basically just before COVID, and then so we've we've been over here. We were over here for eight weeks, so all the family gets to see her, and we get married in in June back in Cornwall. So it was really sort of come over and see the the relatives. That, you know, she's got a big extended Italian family here so the ones that won't be able to travel because you know COVID and and other things so we just sort of come over and done a bit of a tour of with the kids and you know
1: what one in in the gene war of Italian uh, coloring versus ginger what's one out with the kids (laughs) one all oh one all that's nice (laughs) one a
0: piece the daughters uh, the daughter again like we were saying about the ginger hair when I was a kid was very much like um, it was. It wasn't as cool, but now, now apparently it's very cool. Like you, you know, my, my daughter's hair is 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 like your color very similar to your color, and um, and it's in and it's like you know Ed Sheeran, Prince Harry. You know, when I was a kid, it was Mick Hucknall. You know, and it, 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 with the greatest one in the world, it wasn't much of an idol for me growing up. Whereas I think people feel very differently about ginger hair now. So it's great for her, and yeah, the boy is, is much more Lucy's family's coloring. So uh, so yeah, it's of interesting and one all.
1: I didn't manage to have either yeah, well, kid with, with ginger hair. Um, my brother and I are both ginger. My parents aren't, and my kids aren't. My son has a ginger beard, but his hair is not ginger. So if he shaves his beard off, you have no sign of the ginger having carried through. I should add that he's 24. He's not like seven with a hormone disorder. Um, and, <laughs> and what would you pick, Jack, as your favourite joke?
0: Oh, it's oh. Okay. It's a bit of a long one so if you've got time I'm, shaggy I'm, I'm, dog I'm, I'm, story ahoy. it's a it's a it's a shaggy dog story so there's a kid he's called um jimmy um and he loves clowns and um yeah his whole life he's loved clowns he's got pictures of clowns on his walls and this that and the other and his mum comes into the room one day and says oh the circus is coming to town says, what? So, oh amazing they go down to the circus and he's there and all the usual circus stuff's happening and he's just waiting for the clowns and the animals come out blah 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 then the clowns come out and they're you know doing all their thing and they say oh we'd like a, somebody from the audience to come down so he's like nee, nee, nee. so he comes they, they pick him out he comes down to the front and they're like right we're gonna bring out some animals so he brings out uh the first animal's was a lion so oh, what's that and jimmy's like it's a lion and everyone big round of applause and then he brings out a giraffe and, what's that that's a giraffe he says yeah well done big round of applause and out comes a donkey <laughs> and uh, they say oh what's that and jimmy's like that's an ass and the clan goes, "No, you are," and the whole crowd just bursts out laughing. And Jimmy walks back, completely dejected, spirals into kind of you know depression. Doesn't go out. Doesn't talk to anyone. His mum and dad can't figure out what to do. And and then you know as he gets a bit older, they so say, "Look, you know, there's a little after you know after school class on kind of rhetoric and the art of kind of like you know you know obviously." you didn't have anything that you could sort of say back to this guy. So this clown, so, you know, maybe learn. So he goes in there and he excels at it and they're like, you know, you're really, really good at this. You know, we recommend that you go to, you know, this special school that does all about rhetoric and it's, you know, about, you know, the art of kind of wordplay goes there, aces that goes to university, ends up as a professor of, of, you know, the art, you know, he's he's written books about the art of coming back and heckling and all this kind of stuff. And one day he's in the faculty lounge, told you it was a long one. uh, (laughs) He's in the faculty lounge and one of his students comes in and says, "Um, sir, like, what um, you know, what's your what's your motivation? He said, well, I told him the story about the clown and the ass. And, you know, well, look, like, you know, you're the world leading kind of expert on the art coming back. Why don't you find this fucker and, you know, nail him? You know, yeah, we'll come with you, you know. Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Anyway, the kid comes back and says, look, the, the, the clown, the same circus is coming back to town. Like, perfect. He's all right, fair enough. He goes in there. Usual sort of stuff, circus comes out, blah, blah, blah. Then the the clowns come on. We want somebody from the audience. He's gone, put his hand up. No one else put the hand up. So this guy comes forward and he's like, It's the same fucking clown, you know? Comes forward and he's like, um, You're a bit older than normal, but you know, whatever. Brings out the lion. What's that? It's a lion. And the next animal comes out, brings out, What's that? It's a giraffe. Brings out the donkey and said, What's that? He's an ass. And the clown says, No, you are. And he says, Fuck you, clown.
1: You know, they always say longer the longer the setup. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the funny thing is, if you, if I was a big internet geek back in the day, and if you go online to like, you know, Reddit or whatever, and, and you look at the best jokes, what's the best joke? there'll always be a fuck you clown. And, and people are like, what, what does that even mean? But it's one of those jokes that just, I don't know, the more you think about it, the more funny it gets. So yeah. sorry, thanks for bearing with me. And- no, it's
1: good. And we do, um, the only thing is it won't make the Christmas cracker episode because the whole episode is only seven minutes and that would just be you and one other. But um, <laughs> but it's a very solid standalone. I can live with that. <laughs> uh, and if you would give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, what would it be?
0: have a good time all the time no um i think it would be your industry whatever whatever industry you're in like i said earlier on it's not as big as you think and just remember that because something that you say and do and especially in this modern age of twitter and social media and things that you say and do you just have to be careful because you you know when you get to the position where something might happen for you you know if you've if you know you've what you've you know what you've said in the past might come back to bite you so just always remember that you know the industry you know, whatever it might be it, it might seem massive when you're young and like but actually it's small and and people talk so be nice just be nice dad said that to me once he said i said about tv and i was in tv he said what so what i said what would bit of advice would you give me he said be on time And be nice because it's a small industry and everyone knows, and that's probably why Lucy fell in love with me. That
1: was Jack Stein. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guests that I am going to do, and this week, I'm keeping it simple I'm going to boil an egg which is about the one thing I can actually do. It's actually hard to do it. I do it very well. And I'm going to practice slicing bread using my arm like a saw. Rick Stein style. Next stop, bake off. So that's it for this week. Please do remember, as always, to rate, review and recommend the podcast. We absolutely love that you support us and listen to us. And we love all the lovely comments you send to us. That's a lot of love, isn't it? We will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I'll be talking to one of my favourite comedians Esther Manito
0: Getting a lot of negative comments about a woman that goes out and does a job that's of, you know of an evening when you're a mum
1: Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton and produced by Mike Hanson and Karusha Dhami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.
0: Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people.